Welcome to the Not All Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Edition. We have got a very fun, exciting show today with our guests, Beatles historians Kenneth Womack and Jason Kruppa. Both will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Series coming up December 9th. You can find out more details on our website, but today is just going to be a great show because we're going to be talking about George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, Beatles Music. We're going to be talking with Ken Womack and Jason Kruppa about their new book about George Harrison and Eric Clapton titled Harrison and Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Ken Womack and Jason Kruppa will appear via Zoom at Smithsonian Associates December 9th. As I say, for more details, please check out our website, notold-better.com. But boy, this is going to be a great show today. The tumultuous friendship between George Harrison and Eric Clapton shaped not only their lives and careers, but the shifting face of rock music in the early 1970s. Beatles expert Ken Womack and music historian Jason Kruppa, our guest today, explore the rock legend's musical and personal collaboration, their friendship, and their rivalry. Womack and Kruppa will talk to us today about the November 1970 releases of Harrison's All Things Must Pass, the powerful emancipatory statement in the wake of the Beatles, and Layla and other assorted love songs, Eric Clapton's impassioned reimagining of his art while playing with Derek and the Dominoes. This is just going to be a fascinating show. You're going to love this, and I think you're really going to enjoy the book. The albums helped to push rock and roll out of the dreamy idealism of the 1960s into the wild and expansive new realities of the 1970s. We all remember that. Authors Womack and Kruppa's multimedia presentation, which is going to be available December 9th at Smithsonian Associates, provides images, vivid details about the album's creations, highlighting the production of one classic song after another. Much of that we will discuss today, but the presentation also recalls a love triangle for the ages involving Clapton, Harrison, and George Harrison's then-wife, Patty Boyd. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Edition via internet phone, Kenneth Womack and Jason Kruppa. Kenneth Womack, Jason Kruppa, welcome to the program. I just want to jump right in. I just think this is going to be an amazing presentation, just fantastic. And again, coming up at Smithsonian Associates, December 9th, we're going to have links to where you can find out more information about Jason Kruppa and Kenneth Womack's presentation there. The title of the new book is Harrison and Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. I want to talk about the title in just a little bit, but let's just get a sense what inspired you to write the book, you know, at this point and kind of at this point in their lives, Harrison and Clapton. Well, Jason and I have been friends for a long time, and we were looking for a project to do. I think I, <laughs> I'm i probably guilty of strong-arming him uh, into this one, but I think, I think at this point he would probably admit that he's happy about that. Um, it, it just seemed apropos, given the time we're in, uh, the anniversary of these, these two very famous record albums, and two very influential record albums, as you well know, uh, mm-hmm. throughout the 1970s, so... Um, it made a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, as usual, when you take a deep dive like this, what made it so fun is, you know, even though we've thought about this far for far longer in our adult lives than possibly we should have, um, <laughs> I, I Jason, we've learned a lot that we simply didn't know. And Jason? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, uh, I thought when he, when Ken proposed this idea, I thought, well, you know, somebody's certainly somebody must have gone into all things must pass and really interviewed everybody and 
and taken a look at, at how the recording sessions ran and, and all the working parts and you know, sort of figured out all these questions and we looked into it and nobody had done that. Hmm. So it was really an opportunity to, to dig deep into that album and, and, you know, answer a lot of questions that we had and sort of break some myths and, and even sort of the first half of 1970 for George, a lot of information I'd never read anywhere else that, that turned up in the research. So, um, yeah, just, just a, just a big discovery in a lot of ways. Yeah. Fascinating to me. The book, it is excellent. I just am going to highly recommend it. I appreciate you guys sharing it with me. Again, it's titled Harrison and Clapton and Other Assorted Love Song. The book starts with the early lives of George and Eric Clapton. And I thought it was interesting because John, Paul, Ringo, they all had childhoods of difficulty and, and challenge. Eric did too. But how how was it that George's upbringing, his childhood, how did how did that allow him to to fit in perhaps with the with John and, and Paul particularly, did George not have an ego? Can you, can we say that? He had a different kind of, you know, um, it was a different way of approaching what he called the eternal ego cage, right? George believed um, because he was raised in this pretty, really happy household where the family loved each other. They were almost the exception. You know, you're talking about a, um, a uh, you know, a, a dying shipbuilding town. And a lot of people are under economic stress. The population is shrinking. Um, you know, there's gangland violence in, in some parts of the uh, some parts of the city. And here's George. And you know, guys like John and uh, and many others were really impressed with with that household. And I think that gives George his superpower for life, as it, as it should for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Our upbringings matter. Mm-hmm. And George grows up a pretty happy kid. Um, who, who has parents who want to know his opinion, who, um, you know, are interested in, in how he sees the world. And so George grew up a pretty free thinking guy who knew how to express himself. And of course, Jason and I, and I think a lot of Beatles fans all enjoy the fact that George Harrison was known as the quiet Beatle, but (laughs) he would. (laughs) Jason, what about definitely not quiet? No, not quite at all. Had a lot to say. And and Jason, maybe Sorry, go ahead. yeah, I was just going to ask you a little bit about Eric's early life and the challenges that he faced because it just they seem daunting. And and I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about Eric's early life and how that shaped him. Right, he had I mean uh, polar opposite to George, uh, a disrupted household. His you know his mother basically abandoned him to her parents when when she was sixteen, and uh, they they kept up this charade that. She was his sister, um, and and really never acknowledged that that uh, that she was his mother, uh, even though he essentially asked her. And and I, this is this is a you know a, a really important, really devastating moment for him that I I don't think he really ever recovered from. He never healed from this. this is a very deep wound, and this really colors his his decisions, not just personally, but also professionally. One, one thing Ken really, really locked onto was how he would break up bands before they had a chance of, of really succeeding. Or, you know, he got to a point where maybe he felt uh, things were too stable or there wasn't enough excitement or there wasn't enough danger. And he would, he would, he would sort of sabotage these, these uh, situations he was in. He would state that it was, you know, maybe creative differences, um, which, you know, some of that is certainly true, but I think there's, a, there's an emotional aspect here 
that uh, that he repeats over and over, and he's also repeating it in his in his romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. A psychological aspect too of him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, they first meet George and George and Eric first meet in the mid sixties. Really interesting time to to get connected. What what was it that connected the two of them, and and how was that connection different than the connections that Eric had with the other Beatles? Well, it was unique. You know, he and George bonded over the guitar, and uh, that was the way in with Eric Clapton. Um, and uh, they, he, they immediately began talking about guitars as as guitar geeks do, and uh, it, it actually begins to move toward a kind of um, a sadder moment because even from that first meeting, George will go on to say later in life, you know, he could tell that he was dealing with a guy who seemed lonely and wounded. And, uh, you know, what do you do if you grow up in a good household and your parents teach the right, you go and you make friends with that kid, right. To try to help them out. And that's, uh, that's really what George does. He sees a person who, you know, needs a friend and, and he acts that way. As far as the other Beatles go, uh, you know, Eric was more standoffish with them. Um, he would develop relationships of one sort or another with them later. But during that period, um, it really was uh, it really was about uh, it really was about Eric and George. Again, the title of the new book is Harrison and Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. I love that title. Jason, tell us a little bit about the title because it's this great play on Clapton's uh, album Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. Well, it's it's an allusion, uh, you know, to the various relationships in uh, in this story, not just George and Eric, although that is a central relationship. Um, but you know, George and his mother, and George and Patty, and George and the Beatles, uh, certainly not least, uh, kind of hover ho- hover over over all of this. And we, you know, we dig into that. Um, I think out of necessity, we have to talk about all of these different relationships and how George is connected with these people. And, uh, you know, especially, like I say, the, the shadow of the Beatles looms large in, in every ex-Beatles life, <laughs> but uh, certainly in this story in 1970, um, it's a lot to reckon with. We're with Kenneth Womack and Jason Kruppa, authors of the new book, Harrison and Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Both Kenneth Womack and Jason Kruppa will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates presentation December 9th coming up. Again, we're going to put links to where you can find out more information about the presentation and uh, this great uh, Beatles and Clapton story that they've written about. Ken and and Jason, let's let's jump to the year, jump back to the year uh, 1970. And George Harrison, of course, releases All Things Must Pass. Um in the book, you say that this is a, a career-defining album, and I wonder, was this album more powerful musically than than the work that Harrison did with the Beatles? And then maybe tell us a few of the stories of the All Things Must Pass recording experience, the different musicians that were present, all the different sounds and, and music variety that, that Harrison played. I, I read, too, an interesting comment from Alan Parsons in, in the book, too, uh, about kind of the revolving door. So maybe tell us about, about all of that, if you would. Sure, I'll get the first part. Um, and I know Jason has, has much to say about the sessions and Parsons, et cetera. But, you know, Harrison's rising, riding high. I mean, he is just uh, Abbey Road's out. There's a consensus number one single and something. Um, you know, people are in love then as they are now with Here Comes the Sun. He is, you know, he left the Beatles on an extremely high note in terms of uh, his work. I mean, it's uh, 
those songs routinely are in the top five Beatles songs anywhere. It should be. So he leaves the Beatles. And of course, they're not a, a closed question at this point and, and really aren't until December 8th, 1980 in, in many ways. But um, they're not a closed question at that point. Uh, and their partnership will be alive for another four years. So um, he is riding a high note that takes him right into all things must pass. Right. And it's, it's very interesting as, as we detail the first half of, of his life in 1970 and, and all he's doing, how, how very busy he is. He's also giving interviews that he's talking about, you know, I'm sure the Beatles will get together in a few months and we'll do another album. And, you know, it'd be selfish of us not to do an album as, you know, Beatles mean so much to people. So there, it is really an open door at this point. Um, but he, you know, he, one of the things that I think begins moving him past that at least in, in this period is he has this great experience recording all things must pass. And he has, he has over the past year or so um, back into 1969, he's begun working with other musicians, producing other albums, producing um, Billy Preston and uh, Doris Troy. And he's built, he's, he's brought people in like Klaus Foreman. He's brought people like Billy Preston and Eric Clapton in to record. And he's, so he's got this kind of circle of musicians and he, in early 1970, he begins talking about how he wants, a Apple, he wants an Apple house band. Uh, he's still seeing that Apple is, is going to be a productive label and they're going to have groups and they're going to have sort of the stable of musicians like Motown or Stax would have, where you know an artist comes in and they, they sort of have a group of session musicians they can call on that they can trust. This, this Apple house band really becomes the house band for All Things Must Pass. And part of that is, is also um, the formation of Derek and the Dominoes. Those musicians come in too. And gradually that, you know, that group begins to coalesce. And uh, so, so his experience in the Beatles is sort of, you know, struggling to get his songs heard and, you know, get those songs to connect with John and Paul. And if they do connect and they, you know, they're, they're really going to put some effort into it, but if they don't, he realizes he, he shouldn't force it. When he begins presenting these songs to the musicians for his own album, their response is overwhelmingly positive. And he, he has an experience sort of that he's never really had before in the studio where they're going, these songs are good. And one of the things Alan White said was that um, All Things Must Pass, it was easier to work on a song like that that was just so good. It just sort of came together. And you contrast that with the January 69 sessions where George is trying to get them interested in all things must pass. And it's just not clicking. So he has a very different experience working on his own album. And it was kind of an all comers almost approach to musicians, Alan Parsons, who, who was an engineer at the time um, and later had Alan Parsons project comments in the book about, you know, someone shows up, George points him to a guitar and says, you know, join us. Right. And, and it, you know, it goes back again to you know, what we're talking about with that, that kind of uh, open and inviting household that he, that he grew up in. He sort of runs, runs his sessions like that. And, uh, you know, it, it is this, it's a very fluid, this is why there's no consensus to who plays on what. And, you know, there won't be a definitive list of, of, uh, you know, the musicians on each track, even though, you know, we can give an educated guess to a lot of this stuff. Uh, given the research we've done and what's what's come out since, but uh, yeah, people would come in and he would he would say grab a guitar and and join in, and um, sometimes that, that would result in uh, a large 
group of people sort of at the beginning. So Spectre has his wall of sound and he's, you know, he's got a studio full of musicians. And then you see, we see George begin to taper that off and he just has a sort of a select crew, uh, sort of in this middle section where it's the more, the more acoustic kind of country, uh, sound like behind that locked doors is a good example. Um, and then Derek and the dominoes kind of, they form mid June and then they kind of take over the rest of the sessions. You can kind of hear this, this powerful sound that they have, like what is life and, um, front of the mill and things. It's like, they're, they're really in charge of that sound the last couple of weeks. So it, it is a, it is a kind of a revolving door, but George also is, you know, very specific about what he wants for the sound of these songs. Maybe pick a couple of the songs that you both like so much and tell us about them and, 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 and then maybe talk a little bit about Layla too, because I think that's an interesting juxtaposition with, with all of this. Sure. Ken, do you want to start with, uh, you go ahead and do it. all things most fast, and I'll pick up Layla. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the the big one to, to start off with is My Sweet Lord, which has a, a long genesis, um, and, and George records it with Billy Preston at the beginning of 1970 for, for Billy's album, and, uh, and then kind of doesn't touch it and, and doesn't really have plans for his own album at that point. And then finally, once he records his own, he decides to record his own album, it's I think it's probably pretty obvious to him he has to do that song. It's it's very meaningful to him, and he you know it it as we know it now it's this very you know lavishly produced all these voices all these guitars, uh, the string you know the the orchestration, but it really starts off much more simply than that and uh, just just at the very beginning of the sessions and. Um, and it builds. So he doesn't, he, he doesn't seem to have a plan at the beginning. He sort of kind of has a, a sense of what he wants. But if you, if uh, you listen to, you know, one of the tracks that have been floating around for years of just the basic track without the overdubs, it's a pretty straightforward recording, you know, and it still has that spirit. It has that lift because of the way George has written it. And, and he, you know, in the production, in his edition of guitars, and then he overdubs all these vocals, a layer after layer, and then the the the, uh, the orchestration, he sort of builds on the way that it it lifts. Uh, so that's that's kind of built in to the arrangement, and he just amplifies that through the production. And it's it's fascinating to you know we trace that in the in the book. Um, can't obviously hear it. We'll we'll be able to get to some of that in the talk. Actually play it so you can you can hear these changes. But it's a it's a fascinating way to see how it progresses. And that's, that's really true. Of a lot of these songs, George is, he has some ideas, but then as he, as he goes on through recording, these ideas just build and build and build. And the album consequently just becomes this massive statement. It becomes this big, big project, much bigger than he, I think he ever anticipated it to be. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, a number one song and then, and then Ken, yeah. maybe tell us, you know, about Layla, another number one song for these two brilliant guitar gods. Well, it wasn't number one then, of course. That would be years, years later and in a different format. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, it, you know, it will be an absolutely influential song and record. And um, so they, you know, as Jason said, they they finally splinter off uh, from the All Things Must Pass sessions. And they're going to make a band, you know. And, and remember, Eric's really good at the, the first steps in making a band. It's the later <laughs> stuff. Sometimes that stuff comes pretty fast, too, but... 
you know, it starts off really well. He's got these, these musicians, their studio shape. Um, they go to Miami and that's when the wild card occurs. And I think the wild card probably makes the album in many ways. And that is, uh, that of course is Dwayne Allman, right. You know, uh, going up after they, they see the Allman brothers performance and, um, they just click and, uh, Dwayne shows up for the majority of the sessions. And we're only talking about really a few weeks worth of recording dates all told. And, um, you know, they build this album and a lot of it is blues. And of course, Eric has been arguing that he's a blues master. And one of the subterfuges that he provides is this argument that that's why he leaves all of these bands, right? Because they're not blues purists. Like, and, uh, you know, so now he's got, he's got Almond here and, uh, the band, uh, provides this incredible material, including drummer, Jim Gordon, uh, who shows up with the purloined, <laughs> um, song uh from his former girlfriend rita coolidge that becomes that beautiful piano exit that we all know so well uh in, in Layla. yeah amazing album and you know that cover is just so iconic from from the album oh it certainly is and and that you know that that's part of the uh the story of Derek and the dominoes they were performing in, in france and uh they were staying at a, a manor home and <laughs> they uh they actually got involved in a, a massive egg fight in the kitchen. A well-to-do man who owned the home. And uh, next thing you know, uh, after they cleaned everything up, George took a look at this guy's art collection mm. and he found uh, mm-hmm. this work. Yeah, it's a beautiful, a beautiful image. The pictures in the book are wonderful, too. The research that you did to find those, you mentioned uh, Frank Crisp, Sir Frank, Frank Crisp. And I thought that was it was fascinating to see that picture. I was I was interesting, interested to learn about him. Tell us about the the pictures and maybe which are your favorites? I, I am certainly partial to, uh, you know, the the scores um, and Jason deserves a big uh, hat tip for that, for making those possible. John Barham for his generosity. You know, it reminds us what all of this is about, and that's the music. <laughs> People try to make his albums in a way about Patty Boyd. They're not. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I'm sure she's an impetus and an influence, certainly on George, but, and, and Eric, perhaps in the wrong way. But, you know, it's the music that matters. So my favorites have to do with the music. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and then Jason? Yeah, I'm. I mean, we've seen. I've seen this picture for years, but uh, the picture of George in Trident Studio uh, playing acoustic guitar while uh, two of his Krishna friends are are sitting and watching, and one's at the piano. Uh, that's that's my favorite, just because it's it's such a beautiful shot, and it was also shot by uh, one of the other Krishna devotees. So it's 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 just a you know it's just a little window, a very private little window into that that world. Um, just I just love that. Shot. I do too. He, George just looks so at peace, and and uh, it's yeah. an interesting shot because it 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 is kind of a reflection of him almost sitting alone in the garden, surrounded by I don't know the gnomes or whatever those little monuments are. Because right. that's a that's a beautiful shot too. Okay, well, so you mentioned Patty Boyd. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's that's important. Her upbringing and Eric's were similar. Um, they had shared experiences. It was just all kind of came together, but it really did so in a in a deeply divisive way. Maybe maybe tell us that story a bit. 
Sure. So, um, you know, uh, and again, another another big nod to Jason, because early on, we began to think of this correctly in terms of uh, the psychology of it all is trauma bonding. Right. You know, they had a lot in common in terms of their their childhood. Uh, Eric was jealous of George's very stable life, rich man, beautiful wife, et cetera, um, and has come to terms with that now, or at least recently, <laughs> who knows what he thinks about it now, but um, in his autobiography, certainly. And this is why we, we ultimately chose to have the biographical sections up front. You got to know who these people are and, and where they're coming from. And part of that is why George can be generous about how things turn out later, too. Uh, but, but, but Eric certainly had an infatuation, but originally, um, you know, he was, he was thinking about his previous girlfriend when he had read the story of Layla. So, um, I think what, what we can say in retrospect is he took the narrative when, when that relationship, that would have been what Jason Alice Orms be Gore, when that relationship, uh, died, um, a slow death, then Eric just took the narrative and reapplied it. <laughs> to the new object of his infatuation. Right. It's like he was, he was rationalizing, finding a way to rationalize this very emotional, very kind of chaotic uh, experience that he was having. Um, and I, you know, I, I do, I mean, not to get too psychological and, you know, Dr. Laura, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it, they, they have, they both have this kind of shared traumatic upbringing and, even if it's not something that they were conscious of, they were responding to certain emotional cues in each other and, and a certain amount of chaos. I mean, there's, there's a real, a real thing about being addicted to chaos. And, uh, I think Eric was really more in that line. I don't think Patty was necessarily addicted to chaos, but I think there was something that seemed exciting in him at that time. And as we know, it didn't, you know, didn't last. It was, this was not the love for the ages. Um, this was something two two you know wounded people who who got together and um, found how difficult that could be. Sure. Well, you know it's funny. Um, you know he he said years later that you know it didn't it didn't bother him so much, and you know it's, it's sort of it's sort of mind boggling to think, oh well, you know he doesn't care. Like what's how could you not care? Uh, I think he did care. I think he you know, he looks back on this time period, uh, years later and he says what a stressful time this was. His mother was dying. The Beatles were breaking up. His marriage was really on the rocks. It had been on the rocks since, since 1969. He had, Patty had moved out briefly at the beginning of 1969 because he had taken up with Eric Clapton's ex-girlfriend, uh, briefly. So, you know, there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of, uh, I think tensions going back and forth between them. And she had, she had decided even earlier than that, that she was seeing problems even into 1968. So there, there are tensions in their marriage, even before this whole thing with, with Clapton begins to, begins to gain steam. So I think as, you know, as much as we can figure out, you can never really know what, what another person is thinking or feeling as much as they testify to it. And as much as other people talk about it, you know, the, the best thing we can think is the best way we can understand this is, you know, George was coming to the realization that this marriage was ending. Um, and even though he, he may have been stunned by Eric's, you know, at some point 
late in the year, Eric just blurts out that he's in love with George's wife to George. He just tells you, man, I'm in love with your wife. And, uh, you know, right after a, a party at Robert Stigwood's house. And it's just, it is this, it is this kind of shocking moment. Um, but oddly, George, you know, going back to his sort of understanding that he's got this sad, wounded friend, he he still remains connected to him. I think he I think he has a level of understanding about what Eric's going through, um, even if he even if none of them can really explicitly state it or or have a lot of insight about it. And we see this play out the next year when George gets Eric over for the concert for Bangladesh, and Eric is in terrible condition. And and yet he and Patty both work to get him on stage. They they feel like if they can get him connected with the music and, and other musicians, that this is somehow going to help him. So there there's a lot of generosity, uh, especially early on, uh, from George to Eric. And it's I I really feel like it's George's generosity and his understanding that plays a big role in this in this friendship continuing. Kenneth Womack, Jason Krupa, our guest today. Smithsonian Associates program coming up December 9th. Again, links and uh, links to where you can find the book, the excellent book, Harrison Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Guys, thanks for this work. Thanks for all the hard work and the research uh, and your time today being so generous. We really appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you guys again soon. My thanks to Smithsonian Associates for their ongoing support of the show. As I say, please check out our show notes today for details about Kenneth Womack and Jason Krupa's upcoming presentation December 9th at Smithsonian Associates. You'll find all of our details on the website, notold-better.com. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on KSCW. Please, let's talk about better, the Not Old Better show. Thanks, everybody, and see you next week. Remember, you can find everything on our website, notold-better.com.